This is an abbreviated section from one of the chapters of our book, I Am Gravity. And this one is on the element of curiosity, which is one of my favorite things. Most of the time I'll be reading, but I'll have the occasional riff or two, uh, or even set things up a little differently because reading isn't always like talking to someone. And the goal isn't just to be informative, though I hope it is. Our real hope is that you see things a little differently, a little more deeply, and live with a little more gravity. So with that, thanks for listening. Uh, This chapter's title is The Blessings of Bewilderment, and the epigraph for the chapter is The Drug of Certainty, The Curse of the Known. Emily gets up one morning to hear that the White House revoked the credentials of a press member who would not sit down because the president would not answer his questions. The White House has a video, the news agency has a video, and both sides have a story. So Emily swipes out of her newsfeed, works out, showers, dresses, grabs her coffee, and jets out the door for work. And like every other day in the life morning, she checks her email and Slack channels on the subway. She has scheduled interviews to hire a new product manager. Andrew, a member of her team, messages her. He sensed a little bit of friction with engineering in yesterday's product launch meeting. No one said anything. It was just the vibe of the meeting. Emily is not about to let issues beneath the surface hurt a new launch timeline, so she texts the engineering director, Gage, and asks if they can talk it through. The subway is more crowded than usual. A political convention is in town, so outsiders with name badges occupy local seats. A little late for work, Emily takes her last sip of coffee and throws the cup in the recycle bin. Someone with a name badge, likely an outsider, throws a coffee cup in a garbage can, ignoring the recycle sign. Emily is momentarily irritated, but reminds herself she can't control everything. So rushing into work, she grabs a smoothie and enters the interview room. Andrew has started the first interview. She sits down on the only chair that's available, the hard plastic kind you remember from grade school, grabs a heavy-duty clipboard with the candidate's resume securely clipped on, and joins in. The first few candidates do not impress her. They don't seem collaborative, they're a little too independent, and one strikes her as very competent, but a little robotic. With more candidates to interview in the afternoon, Emily drops in on Gage to see how things are going. Gage, rushing out of his office for lunch, smirks when Emily mentions the perceived friction, saying that things are fine, but that he'll have to talk later. Making a note to connect with Gage later, she checks a few more messages and heads to the meeting room for the second set of interviews. The room is double booked. After 20 minutes of trying to figure out logistics, everyone grabs their clipboards and resumes and moves to a different room. But the room is better anyway. At least it has more comfortable chairs. And the candidates are better. They seem more socially intelligent. They're better conversationalists, more at ease with the team. Emily asks more questions, and they click. Andrew notices that, telling Emily she seems more engaged in the interviews. She was. Later that day, Emily prepares to make one of the candidates an offer. It's been kind of a normal day, except that Emily was living under a few illusions without a hint of knowing it. So were the people around her. Candidates were better and worse than she thought. There wasn't friction with Gage's team, as Andrew supposed. And the job offer she was about to make was to a good candidate, but not as good as one who interviewed earlier in the day. And just maybe it was Emily and not the convention outsider who tossed their coffee cup in the wrong bin.
how do we know this? Because Emily isn't entirely a fictional character. Her day is everyone's day, and new odds from science let us in on a few secrets. MIT, Harvard, and Yale researchers conducted six studies on how our perceptions unconsciously change by something as innocuous as the way things feel or look, part of what scientists call haptics. For instance, if you review a resume that's attached to a heavy clipboard, you rate the candidate as more serious about the job. You also rate your opinion about the candidate as more important than raters next to you with lightweight clipboards. If you sit in a hard chair during the interview, the candidate seems more stable and less emotional. If you're holding a warm drink, you see the interviewee's personality as warmer. There is a part of Emily's day of misses, everyone's day, that is unfixable. It would be grueling to continually wonder why, how, where, and when we were living in a mirage, duped into bad decisions by such inconspicuous things as drink temperatures, chair softness, and clipboard weight. Some part of the truth is always hidden by haptics. The uncontrollable outcome is that the truth stays concealed, left out of whatever equation leads to the best answer. So just knowing the haptic fact that we can't always be right is a step toward a more open, curious mind, and less angst when we get it wrong. It is Emily's certainty, and all of our certainty about the truth when another version is accessible that is an ailment that begs for a cure. So over 10 years with thousands of people, we ran an experiment to explore the effects of speed, competition, and uncertainty, or in other words, work, on curiosity. The task was to put a basic jigsaw puzzle together, and the rules were simple. Put it together, tell us when you're done, and the best time wins. The puzzle is an image of a course workbook they've been using. And so the competition starts with each team pouring the puzzle onto the table. And there are about 39 pieces to that puzzle. And you know the drill. Start with the edges. And quickly seeing that the puzzle and the workbook are identical, they grab it for a reference just like you would a puzzle box. Ten minutes into the competition, a team claims victory, even though their puzzle is only partially finished and it has extra pieces on the outside that are completely unconnected to the puzzle. So some teams sweep the extra puzzle pieces off to the side in a pile so they don't interfere with the clean, finished picture. So we scan the team's table and announce that they are not done and that the competition is definitely not over. So everyone jumps back to their puzzle. The victorious team is confused. Some people get upset. A few teams will walk over to see why the alleged winners did not win. Everyone forges ahead. Soon, a second team declares victory, despite having extra pieces, and then a third. And after a few more competitive, chaotic minutes, we tell everyone to stop, revealing what the finished puzzle looks like, which is that the outside edge of the jigsaw puzzle isn't straight. It has curved edges, which isn't anything like the conventional puzzles they've seen before and voids the basic starting rule, start with the edges. So after the competition, groups talk through what the experience reveals about curiosity in the context of work, and the answers are typical. People talk about getting caught up in the race to finish, or how familiarity causes us to look at new things in an old way. Okay, fine, yada, yada, yada. But there's more to it than that. What they don't know, and this is the revealing part of the experiment that sparks an entirely different discussion, is that we record 
everything they say during the competition. Over the years, we noticed a pattern that never deviates, and here's how it starts. Start with the edges. Put similar pieces together first. You take half, we'll take half, so like the team divides up uh, to conquer it faster. It's the workbook. Get the workbook, and then some type A eventually is like, go, go, go. Puzzles don't have curved outside edges, at least no puzzles they've seen until this one. What people say to start the competition lines up with a typical puzzle plan. There's no reason to be intensely curious or to not be confident. It's just pure competence. But when they realize the extra pieces aren't extras, it becomes clear they don't grasp the puzzle. Now they have every reason to be more curious. They're not. And that switches the mentality. This isn't fair. The puzzle is missing pieces. What do you want us to do now? What's the point of this if you can't put it together? Don't get sucked into their game. This isn't solvable. There are too many pieces. The extra pieces don't matter. Raise your hand. We won. It's a teamwork thing. They're testing our ability to work together. It's one big puzzle. Get everyone to bring their puzzle pieces over here, which, by the way, is the beginnings of curiosity, but it soon gets snuffed out. Or the final one is we give up. If we gave everyone unlimited time to solve the puzzle, we believe they would. We've mentioned that hypothesis to groups when the exercise is over. Some half-heartedly agree, most disagree. And here's part of the reason. Merck asked 3,000 people to describe their work personalities. The top five personality traits were organized, collaborative, detail-oriented, energetic, and optimistic. Half of those surveyed listed those traits as their strongest. They're good traits. They're part of everyone's pitch in a job interview. Odds are that everyone working on the puzzle had a healthy mix of the top five, but not the one they needed most. Only one in five said they were curious, and even lower, unconventional at 14%, and a little rebellious at 4%. And assuming a healthy dose of self-rater bias, the reality is probably even lower. Everyone knows, metaphorically speaking, that we don't live in a straight-edged world. Jagged outside edges exist, but when they lost curiosity, they lost confidence. And the traits of pure curiosity were extinguished by the conditions of speed, competition, and the traits of execution. And it didn't matter how collaborative, detailed, energetic, or organized they were. The puzzle exercise is a psychological setup to make people incurious. So is day-to-day -day work. Decades of research by psychologists from Jean Piaget to William James show that curiosity has a peak zone comprised of two simple concepts, knowledge and surprise. So imagine this as a scale with knowledge and surprise on the polar ends. At the left end of the curiosity scale, we have no knowledge of something say, string theory and particle physics. No knowledge means we're not interested. We also anchor left when we're overwhelmed by something that's new or that's harder than we expected. Keeping a safe distance from curiosity guarantees that there are no surprises and a self-protected sense of certainty. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a jigsaw puzzle, the known. Everyone knows how jigsaw puzzles work. With a small number of puzzle pieces, plus a workbook they've used for an entire day, the known, saturated people. If nothing appears to be new or surprising, we blow past it. The jigsaw puzzle introduced surprise and knowledge, both ends of the spectrum, and that pushed everyone to the less curious edges, 
We kill curiosity when we mistake the ordinary and unsurprising for nothing more than that, or retreat from what may intimidate us. 80% of us congregate at those extremes. Resisting the pull is precisely what holds the power to be perceptive, to see what no one else sees. 